biblical Christian worldview. Media missionaries where Christianity and culture collide. Welcome to Biblical Christian Worldview. Today we're going to cover three topics. The first is Dr. Emmanuel Cleaver II and his opening prayer to the 117th Congress, which was uh, this year. The second is Jehovah's Witnesses at my door. What to say? Um, a unique approach to how to deal with the false theology of Jehovah's Witnesses when they come knocking. And the third topic is, could God offer salvation to Satan? An interesting theological question. So let's get started. Dr. Emanuel Cleaver is a U.S. congressman. He was elected in 2005 and has represented the 51st District of Missouri, uh, serving on the committees uh, such as the Financial Services Committee and Homeland Security. Looking more closely at Dr. Cleaver's educational background, he received five honorary doctoral degrees augmented by a bachelor's degree from Prairie View A&M and a master's degree from St. Paul's School of Theology in Kansas City. So from Wikipedia, we learn that Dr. Cleaver was a Methodist pastor of St. James United Methodist Church in Kansas City, from 1972 to 2009. At that point, his son, Dr. Emanuel Cleaver III, assumed that position. So what's so special about uh, Dr. Cleaver and his service as a U.S. congressman currently serving today? Congressman and Pastor Cleaver became infamous in early January of this year, 2001, when he was given the distinct honor of offering the invocation which is the beginning prayer for the 117th Congress. Dr. Cleaver closed his prayer saying, quote, Amen and Ah Woman, unquote. As a result, many jumped on this phrase, seeing it as either an attempt at inclusivity, both on a temporal as well as a spiritual level, or as a twisted theology for not recognizing uh, Amen as having nothing to do with gender. However, in all that clutter of controversy, much of what else Cleaver said as he concluded his televised prayer was missed. So Dr. Cleaver, longtime senior pastor of United Methodist Church with five honorary doctorates and an MDiv from St. Paul School of Theology, closed his invocation prayer on the opening day of the 117th Congress with the following words, quote, we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and by many names and by many different things. Amen and a woman. Unquote. In the video, a kind and respectful Neil Cavuto interviewed Dr. Cleaver, who attempted to explain the Amen and a woman statement. However, very few seem to have noticed the much deeper errors in Cleaver's theology. He begins the closing of his prayer on a strong biblical Christian footing, referring to God as monotheistic. It is in the next ten words Cleaver seems to have shaken much of his theological underpinning. For example, Brahma is the creator God in Hinduism, not Christianity. Along with two other gods, Vishnu and Shiva, he is the least worshipped god in Hinduism today. As an attempt to merge Christianity with Hinduism, 
among other religions, Cleaver referenced our God as being known by quote-unquote many names. Cleaver's prayer continued to state that our God is also known for quote-unquote different things. This is a reference to pantheism, the concept of God being part of everything, including rocks and plants. And yet he prefaced this by using the term, quote, monotheistic God, unquote. Therefore, I do not think his alma mater, much less his congregation, would look at any of this in a favorable light. Clearly, any biblical Christian, or even any carnal Christian, would immediately recognize the heresy in Cleaver's words. To be clear, my point is not to criticize Dr. Cleaver or even to challenge his theology, We are all allowed the freedom in this country to speak our own personal biases, whether they be theological, moral, or practical. My point here is to offer evidence that this extreme effort to elicit unity at all costs, in this case across religions, can result in a watering down and marginalizing of our Christian foundations. When attempted against our supreme authority, the Bible, It can further twist someone who knows better into defending a heretical position. I'll end with James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This second topic uh, in our podcast today speaks to uh, a unique approach to discussing theology with Jehovah's Witnesses when they come knocking at your door. For a number of years, the JWs would infrequently come up our long driveway to visit my wife while I was at work. She was very kind and accommodating, uh, initially talking at their car and eventually having them come into the house for extended discussions. Uh, Typically, one individual would remain in the car and two would come in. My wife was very well-founded in her biblical Christian faith. She's just a warm and friendly person and saw this as an opportunity to listen and to offer her own views on her faith, as so many others do when Jehovah's Witnesses are at the door and we start wondering what to say. I finally retired and recently was at home when they arrived, an older lady and a younger one again with a third staying in the car. I was polite as I listened to them discuss their faith sitting around our dining room table, but after about 15 or 20 minutes, I began to challenge them in a way that was increasingly direct. After making clear the differences between a biblical Christian worldview and their false theology, uh, something that they have heard many times, I began challenging the premise of their faith and their twisting of scripture. At this point, the older lady asked the younger one to get the lady in the car to come in to better clarify their theology. Once we all settled down to the table, I again laid out some of the differences in our theological positions. We bantered back and forth for a while, something I'm sure was standard practice for the more knowledgeable um, Jehovah's Witness believer. Finally, I made the following point that I think is both appropriate and I'm sure is outside their standard frame of reference. Here's in summary what I said. At death, If you are not a believing Jehovah's Witness, you remain asleep until you're annihilated. You do not believe in the pain of hell. However, if one believes as I do, 
at death, if you are not a born-again biblical Christian, you will pass from eternity into a real and literal hell with no opportunity for escape. Therefore, when I see you offering your false teachings in my home and to my neighbors as you travel from house to house trying to earn a better place in your false heaven, I see your efforts directed solely and exclusively at sending people to hell for eternity. So from my perspective, it not only saddens me that you are lost, but more significantly, it angers me that you are pressing others toward the same eternal punishment. Now, obviously, this direct approach was outside their normal door-to-door experience. And I know on the surface, it does not show Christian hospitality, much less love. However, consider the deeper truth of my point. As Jehovah's Witnesses spend their time spreading false teachings to those weak in the faith, their rhetoric is hell-bound. Scripture offers the theological concept of righteous indignation, shown by Jesus while turning the tables over of the money changers, for example. To me, directly teaching people how to go to hell rather than heaven supports a biblical basis for anger and directness as much or more than commerce conducted in the outer temple court. Perhaps Christians have been too passive and fearful as we've watched this country depart from its roots. So, the next time you see the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons roaming through your neighborhood proselytizing their false teachings, consider they could be visiting your kids or your parents. We all only get one chance in this life to spend eternity in heaven in the next. Our third topic for today's podcast is an interesting one. Could God offer salvation to Satan? God allowed a pathway to redeem mankind through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were bought at a price. It's only through God's grace and our faith that we can look forward to the Holy Spirit in our lives. He lives in us and through us while we're on this earth. Our ultimate eternal destination is heaven with our Lord and Savior. If God did that for us, could God offer salvation to Satan as well? So let's go back to where it all began. Adam was the first human sinner. However, he was not the first to sin. Lucifer was the greatest of angels whom God created before Adam. God allowed the sin of pride to enter Lucifer. He and a third of the angels fell from heaven, becoming Satan and his demons. This is documented in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, among other places. Satan was at the time in the Garden of Eden, and he was represented by the serpent in Genesis 3, 1 through 24, influencing Adam and Eve to sin by eating the forbidden fruit. From this point forward, mankind was destined to leave a, live a life of toil, being driven out of the garden in Genesis 3:22 and following. Christ was born, led a sinless life, and died on the cross as payment for our sins, 2 Corinthians 5:21. In this way, God offers each of us a path to heaven for eternity. To walk that path, we need to confess our sins. Further, we need to believe he died on the cross for our sins, Romans 10.9, and finally accept Christ as both our Lord and our Savior. 
But what about Satan? Why did God provide a pathway for man to come into a personal relationship with himself, but seems not to have made any provision for the redemption of Satan and his minions? (laughs) From a quick Google search, there are very few theologically sound responses to this question. Those writers and speakers that do address it respond with a traditional answer involving the sovereignty of God. An example of that is the one provided by the Gospel Project, which uses the approach offered in Matthew 8, 29-31 as their proof text. They draw six insights from this passage about demons. The final observation was that demons are, quote, in willing rebellion against God, unquote, and they offer two reasons why this rebellion is irrevocable. First, Jesus represents the only biblical solution for sin, and the Bible was written exclusively for humanity. Jesus documents no provision in his sacrifice to allow for fallen angels to be redeemed. Second point is that demons' fate has already been sovereignly decreed by God. No more angels will fall, and no more demons will be saved, quote-unquote. They conclude by definitively stating that demons willingly continue in rebellion against God. The implication of this statement is that demons' final resting place being in hell is irrevocable and irrefutable. Our concern is that they offer no further scriptural reference to support either of these two assertions. And, of course, the reason for that is there are no other biblical references to this position. My personal opinion is that the Gospel Project's answer is both shallow and unsubstantiated. They assume God has used his letter to mankind to also define his eternal relationship with spiritual beings, such as angels and demons. Demons are discussed only in the context of being ancillary characters in the relationship between God and man. Angels long to look into that relationship, 1 Peter 1.12, and demons are focused on destroying or preventing that. There's no question that the Bible is inerrant in its original writing. However, it is equally true that Scripture is accurate only on the subjects it addresses. Those things the Bible does not speak to cannot and should not be tacked on to its systematic theology. Scripture does not speak to the question of God's eternal provision for angels. Therefore, it's dangerous to make a blanket interpretation without reservation. To say that God will not choose to add to the population of angels or that they will willingly continue in rebellion as man does without any provision for redemption extends interpretation beyond the boundaries of available verses. Ultimately, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. The Gospel Project and so many other writers and speakers in their attempts to deepen our understanding of who God is and how he operates inadvertently put God in a box. In this case, speaking beyond Scripture, they imply that God does not wish to add to the population of angels, and further, he's unwilling, or worse yet, unable to save them. The truth is that God can do and will do whatever he wants in areas outside of what he's taught us through his word. So what do we really know from Scripture? I would offer the following. First, we know that angels, along with Lucifer, became demons to reside primarily on the earth, John 14:30. Second, we know that at the end of the age, those demons will end up in the fiery pit of hell for eternity. 
2 Peter 2.4 and Revelation 20.10. We also know that these spiritual creatures are in a different state of being than we are. One that will change for us as we pass from this life to the next, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And then again when we receive our new bodies, Philippians 3.21. Most importantly, we know that it is only in the state we are currently in, which is alive on this earth, that we have an opportunity to impact our final eternal destination, Hebrews 9.27. Once we die, our fate is sealed forever, Hebrews 1.13. Since God has made clear that mankind cannot obtain redemption and salvation once we become spiritual, which is upon death, perhaps those who are created as spiritual beings, angels and demons, have the same limitations. Said differently, redemption is scripturally confirmed as being closed for man after death. So one could assume that it's likely in the same spiritual state the option is also closed for Satan and his demons. Of course, there's one final point that the theologians seem to miss in this otherwise smooth path to an answer. Referring back to the beginning of this post, sin entered the world not by man alive on earth, but initially through Lucifer in the spiritual realm. We acknowledge Lucifer became Satan as a spiritual being due to his pride. To attempt the premise that God will not provide for redemption in the spiritual realm means God allowed Lucifer and his angels to make a free will decision without a way out. We know our eternal life is based on a decision to follow or not follow Christ and can only be exercised while we're on this earth. We can only assume that God has determined Satan and his demons in the same state we will be in after we die will also not have the ability to change their eternal state, either those destined for heaven as angels or to hell as demons. However, we should not be dogmatic because scripture only speaks clearly to our human condition and not God's true sovereignty in the spiritual realm. That's all for this week's podcast. Please check us out at www.bcworldview.org. Media missionaries providing honest reporting and analysis on the intersection of contemporary issues and theology based on a biblical Christian worldview. May God bless you and protect you as you share your faith with a lost and dying world. Biblical Christian Worldview. Media missionaries where Christianity and culture collide.